listening to The Trauma Beat, hosted by me, Tamara Cherry. Check the show notes for anything that might activate your own trauma responses. And as always, like, subscribe, comment, do what you can if you like what you hear. Episode 8, my conversation with silence breaker, Louise Godbold. Why do you, or do you prefer Lou or Louise in these situations? Well, I was christened Louise and quite was quite happy with the name in England until I came to the US and everybody laughed and said it was an old lady's name. But now as I'm heading to an old lady, perhaps it's appropriate. But uh, <laughs> my family always called me Lou and then people here started calling me Lou and it feels so friendly that I ended up uh, signing my emails Lou. And so it's kind of stuck. I love it. I love it. Okay, well, Lou, Louise, whichever you prefer, can you just start out by introducing yourself? Okay, uh, I'm Louise Godbold. I'm the executive director of ECHO, which is a nonprofit that provides training for parents, trauma survivors, and those who support trauma survivors, whether they be professionals or family members. And our goal is education. And the further goal of the education is to help us have more compassion for ourselves and for other people. Wonderful. I should also mention, mm-hmm. uh, if you Google me, you will find that I'm a Weinstein survivor. I'm one of the first women who came forward in October 2017. And um, that's not a claim to fame that you would really want, but it has given me a platform. It has allowed me to talk from both the perspective of a survivor and as a trauma expert. So I am grateful for that platform. And I know we're going to be talking, Lou, about uh, some of the media coverage that you've experienced as being like through under that title, being a Weinstein survivor. But did you feel just now when you were introducing yourself, do you feel like you always need to mention that when you're talking about trauma or like, what's that like putting on the different hats or is it just all one, one big thing at this point? Well, it depends on the circumstances. I have got used to being able to introduce myself to someone I meet in everyday life without having to say, oh, and by the way, um, and this is, you know, what, four years on now? So I've kind of reclaimed my identity as a trauma expert and an educator and a nonprofit professional. But when it's media, that's usually the reason they want to speak to me. I think there are, you know, very many trauma experts and some of them have got very impressive credentials and uh, still the the general perception of trauma is that it belongs squarely in the realm of mental health. And even by saying that, you might think, well, it does, doesn't it? But if you think about it over the centuries, it's been the purview of um, spiritual traditions, it's been the purview of medicine, it's uh, been uh, something that is explored through literature and art, and it's only recently that the mental health professional have decided to uh, grab it for their own, Mm. Um, and I'm I'm being a little facetious there, but um, the, the tragedy of that is that Talk therapy is not the only therapy that is going to be effective. And actually, some of the leading experts in the field who are psychiatrists, therefore medically trained and understand about 
neuroscience, um, they say when we talk about trauma and if we are in active trauma or that causes us to uh, be re-traumatized or to relive that trauma, uh, then the speech area of the brain is cut off. It's, it's part of the higher brain. And when we're in trauma, we're in the survival brain. So there are so many therapies available to people. Um, it's a disservice to say that you have to go and have talk therapy and only the mental health professionals can help you when actually a lot of body-based modalities can be really helpful. And things like dance and art and writing. Mm -hmm. So on that note, Lou, can you tell me a little bit about, you, you touched on it in your introduction, but tell us a little bit about your work with trauma survivors and how you got into this line of work. Well, I have my official and unofficial capacity. Mm -hmm. So my official capacity is running this education program. Um, and we come in contact with trauma survivors of every variety. And we started out um, really, being deeply immersed in the research around childhood adversity because we were running a parenting program and it that is still the root of so many people's later trauma histories you know if you experience trauma as a child you're much more likely to experience further traumas as an adult so it is still the underpinning of everything but uh so I come, as I said, I come in contact with trauma survivors um, with all kinds of trauma histories. But after I came forward about Harvey, then suddenly I got a lot of phone calls from sexual violence survivors. And there is a kind of um, informal network of survivors and we support each other. And a lot of people get referred to me because um, I'm not the authorities. Uh, I'm not a shrink exactly. So I can kind of come alongside like a, a friend because I am a peer. Mm -hmm. I'm also a survivor of a high profile abuser, but uh, I have the knowledge about trauma that can be so helpful for recovery. So I speak a lot with survivors of sexual violence and I speak a lot with those who have that next layer of trauma, which is bringing us back to our subject here, mm -hmm. where they're exposed to a lot of media interest, not because of who they are, mm -hmm. but because of who their abuser is. And that's a very unique situation to live through. And so um, I talk to a lot of people who fall into that category. So on that note, Lou, if you're comfortable doing so, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the media attention that you've received. Some of it has been about your own trauma that you've mentioned and some of it about other people's trauma. You sent me a list a few days ago of the interviews that you've given, some of the interviews that you've given and the media coverage that you've been a part of over the years. I counted more than three dozen articles and that's just on the list you sent. And that does not even include the pieces, the very valuable pieces uh, that you have written. How would you describe the cumulative impact uh, that these stories have had on you? Well, first of all, that list was only the ones I want to remember. There's plenty oh. I want to forget. Um, I think I've learned an awful lot and I'm not, anti-journalists, anti-reporters. 
because I feel a lot of affinity. I'm a writer, as you as you mentioned, I've um, published quite a few pieces myself, and I've always been in media. Started out in the film industry before I became uh, involved in nonprofit work, and I'm a communicator, so I have a lot of affinity with journalists. Um, unfortunately, with my trauma hat, trauma training hat on, I realized that what happens is what happens in any field, that um, we become very, very invested in our own knowledge and our own expertise, and we don't even think about it anymore. So we go into a situation knowing that we're bringing that expertise, having a sense that it's our job, to arrange things according to that expertise. And we're not often thinking about the impact in terms of putting ourselves in the shoes of the other person. And sometimes it's a protective thing, like uh, medical personnel, if they really had to put themselves into the shoes of the person who was suffering, that's just a lot of suffering to carry around every day. And maybe that's the same protective um, instinct with reporters as well, but I began to realize that there was a lot that media could learn about interviewing trauma survivors. And as I said, some of those lessons are really universal for any profession. And I'm not singling out journalists as being any different or any worse than any other field. Although I would say that journalists like when you when you think about professionals whose job requires them to interact with trauma survivors journalists probably have the least amount of training about what trauma is what it looks like um i would like it's starting to change <laughs> but certainly when i was going through journalism school i don't re i don't remember hearing the word trauma once or or and and i i don't want to just say journalism school but even working in newsrooms, you know, trauma-informed journalism was not in my vocabulary at all. Um, this might seem like an obvious question, Lou, but how is the impact of the media on you different when you are asked to speak about your own trauma with that survivor hat on versus being called upon as a broader expert in the subject of trauma? It's very different. And that gets to the heart of what we're talking about. So if I'm asked to give my opinion as an expert, there is a certain degree of respect that's being afforded to me. And it's my cumulative knowledge and experience that I'm being asked to apply to whatever situation, whatever discussion. That should be the same standard for a survivor because we're talking about the survivor's experience. Who is the expert on the survivor's experience? The survivor, of course. And yet there's not the same dignity that's afforded and I think it's um I don't think it's necessarily conscious but I can tell you every single film interview I've done or interview on film they always want the shot of the ringing hands mm. and the truth is that when I'm recording an interview um of course I'm a little bit nervous and that's how it comes out is my hands are working away and and I used to be uh in the field of making commercials 
and I worked for a director who's famous shot on all of the commercials he did, AT&T and all these different commercials that were um, very popular at the time, uh, very character driven. And he would always do the close up of the hand. So I, I knew to look for it, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's like, really, do we have to have the ringing hands? Yeah. And uh, so when we're talking about journalism, obviously we're talking about a range. Um, I've been interviewed by some incredibly knowledgeable, sensitive, amazing journalists, um, particularly women who've made it their um, job to explore research and come prepared to interviews. And um, it is definitely a meeting of minds and it's a very um, inspiring experience. Of course, I've also suffered the other end of the spectrum, which are the out and out hacks, the unapologetic sensationalists. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the range is huge. But what I'm interested in is that uh, it's, it's all about graduation, right? So you have the hacks on one end, and I include in those some of the rags that we have in the UK, we call them the red tops, you know, they're total mm -hmm. Yep. sensationalism driven um, newspapers, if you can call them a newspaper. Um, and then you have journalists uh, who are being supported by places like the Dart Center and um, other organizations that want to provide support to journalists who are being exposed to a lot of trauma. For example, those reporting from Ukraine right now and from uh, war-torn areas. And that's very important because we know that 15 to 20% of people who are continu continually exposed to the details of trauma will themselves end up with post-traumatic stress. So that is a very important thing. Then you've got the enlightened individuals like yourself who are saying, hang on a minute, we're talking about the impact of trauma on us as journalists, but what about us as an agent of change when we go into a situation and interview somebody, we're not just a recording machine. We are, by our intervention, this interview, changing things in some way. Is it for better or is it for worse? That, that is a great thing for people to be talking about. Mm -hmm. So this is the whole graduation. And you can imagine, I'm very, very happy mm -hmm. <laughs> about the part where people are really realizing that this is about the survivor's experience. And that's when we get to uh, the nomenclature of trauma-informed care, trauma-informed practice. If you wanna summarize what that is, mm -hmm. it is caring about the survivor's experience. That's the heart of it. This is where it may be a sophistry given you know, how much advancement has been made to even get to this point. So I don't want to, um, I don't want to dismiss that journey to be where we are now. Mm -hmm. And there is something that I see really often training professionals in trauma-informed practice, which is, ironically, we begin to think about gaining trauma-informed practice knowledge and skills in order for us to be more effective as a professional by even thinking in those terms, we've already removed ourselves from thinking about the survivor's experience. Mm. 
And you talked about survivor centered. It might sound like that's what I'm saying, but I'm not. Because think about those words, survivor centered. Who's doing the centering? It's the journalist, it's the Mm -hmm. professional. Mm -hmm. So again, it's being filtered through the lens of your assumptions and your knowledge and your expertise. And if we forget that the most important thing is the survivor's experience, we can end up with this incredible trauma-informed practice that is still re-traumatizing survivors. So if somebody came in and say, for example, they only wore black because they've been told that colors can be activating. They didn't make eye contact. They sat to the side. They stayed stony faced because they were told not to show emotion. And they didn't give any personal details because they were told, don't make this about you. I would think that I'd encountered a robot. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think I would really feel very safe mm-hmm. emotionally in that situation. So that's why I keep reiterating. It's, you know, guys, it's really simple. Mm-hmm. Ask the survivor what works for them. That is what being survivor-centered is all about. That is what being trauma-informed is all about. Please don't make it a new field of study that increases the expertise of the professionals involved. And by dint of that, and the way that professionals interact, reduce the power that the survivor has disempower the survivor because only when you ask the survivor you tell me what works for you do they begin to claw back a little bit of control in that power dynamic which is very much weighted on the side of the professional because a they get to choose what airs or what's published b they set the tone and the theme Uh, c Uh, They come in with all this uh, professionalism, which can be intimidating. Um, And D, they've done this before. And the survivor probably hasn't and doesn't know what to expect. So, I mean, that's A, B, C, D, E. But there's probably very many other reasons that you can think about why there is an inequality in the power there. Can can I just ask you on that point, Lou, because... um, you just mentioned that they might not have ever done an interview before. And you remind me of year, there were years ago, there was a point in my career where I was doing a lot of reporting on human trafficking. And I was interviewing a lot of survivors and none of them had ever spoken to a reporter before. So when you say, ask the survivor what works for you or what doesn't work, um, they might not know, right? Because they've never been interviewed by a journalist before and they might not realize how it goes. So. Do you have any tips for journalists on how they can guide the survivor or or what they should do? They will know. They will know. Okay, tell me about that. I mean, if you go into a darkened room Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you were abused in the dark, Mm -hmm. um, your stomach might clench and you may not have the wherewithal to know why your stomach is clenching and why that's increased your nervousness. But if the person who's, this is, an, this is a true life story, a, a couple of times actually, I've come into a situation where they'd set up to interview me and it's pitch black. Mm. And then there's a strong lights on the chair where you have to sit and it's like being in an interrogation. Yep. Um, you can't see the people behind the cameras and in the background, you don't know who is there, male or female, that might m- matter to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I didn't have the wherewithal to think, 
why does this feel so intimidating? Mm -hmm. But if, if the director or the reporter had said, um, are you okay with the, the dark, the darkness? We're doing this for a better, you know, better lighting, but we can turn the lights up. Do you want us to try that mm -hmm. uh, to see if that feels better? Mm -hmm. Then I would have been like, oh yes, please. Yeah. You know what? That yeah. might be better. Yeah. And then same way about, I once sat in front of a camera for three hours and I'm convinced to this day that the whole reason was they were waiting for, you know, the uh, the golden shot, which was of me crying. Yeah. And uh, I'm somewhat inclined to believe that because in the trailer for this particular piece, uh, that was the my, my three second appearance was me crying. Um, uh, the women involved, I don't think they're quite as merciless as um, deliberately trying to make me suffer. So after three hours, I'd start crying. But um, they were looking for, you know, the printable shop. Yeah. But um, if someone had said to me during that, I mean, as you can see, I can I can talk for England. I can, I can go on forever. But if someone had said, it's pretty hot under these lights, would you like to take uh, just a, a five minute break and have some water? Then I would have realized, oh yeah, actually I am hot and I am thirsty. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that given the opportunity, even if you've never done this before, that the survivor will know what they need. Lou, how did that feel? I mean, first, could you tell me, I mean, sitting in a chair for three hours, I've I've never heard of a, a recorded interview going on for that long, but can you tell us um, how you felt leaving that interview, um, if you're comfortable doing so, and then what the impact was on you to only have that 30 seconds or whatever it was um, be a part of the, the story? Well, you nailed it uh, because that was the most upsetting thing. And here we get into some of the challenges uh, because the producer and the director on this documentary are lovely women. And a lot of what happened became part of my article, the Do No Harm article, which was my first exploration of, you know, how reporters um, with the right information could do better. Mm -hmm. And they both called me afterwards because they recognized themselves and they were very upset. And to give them the credit they deserve, you know, they were really curious and they wanted to learn and they wanted um, to learn from that experience. Uh, but they also were under constraints, um, which is part of the business of making documentaries or publishing a newspaper story, which is um, the editor mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of um, newspapers, uh, print journalism, it's the editor who gets to decide what stays in and what doesn't. And for documentary making, a lot of the time you go out and you grab a lot of footage and you're not quite sure of what the story arc is before you actually start. You want to see what you've got. And then at the end, you'll decide, okay, well, I've shot 15 women, but actually I want to really focus in on the stories of these three women. Mm -hmm. So I think they were actually trying to do us a favor by including the clips for those of us who didn't make the main story category. Um, 
but and the producer was trying to be very trauma informed she actually came to my home and showed me the cut before it was released and I didn't know what to say Mm. because I kept waiting for my part and then it was a three second blink and you miss it and she was obviously prepared for me to be upset that Mm. I wasn't in it more um and I really liked this woman but so I really didn't know what to say um and I I've been in the industry I know that it's about storytelling and trying to tell the story most effectively and with the most impact if you're trying to make a point such as Mm -hmm. Their point clearly was that Harvey Weinstein is a bastard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's clearly what they were going for. But um, it was very hurtful. And I'll tell you why, and I haven't told anyone this before. In that three hours, which was pretty grueling, um, and a lot of my defenses came down. And I, again, I don't know if that was deliberate. I, I presume not knowing these two women, but... Mm-hmm. I ended up relating the uh, sexual abuse that had occurred when I was a child. Mm. And I had never told my mother. Mm. And the reason I didn't tell was because I, you know, as a small child felt that I would be in trouble. And I guess that is, it's, you're, you get locked into that thinking and you don't have the ability to say, no, that's something I thought at eight, but now I'm an adult. Um, I, I shouldn't think like that. I have no reason to think like that. So I was actually planning a trip back to Europe and I used the opportunity visiting my mother to tell her and all hell broke loose. Oh no! She was really upset um, and she didn't know quite how to respond and so she apologized later for you know, not knowing really how to respond. But it was it was, it was awful. Mm. <laughs> it was awful. And then my brother and sister got involved because they were upset that my mom was upset. Mm. And then I had to confront this family member who was the abuser because it was my mother's 80th birthday and he was there. Oh, my goodness. And it was just awful. And the only reason... I made that revelation is because I thought that it was going to be in this documentary. It was made for a British company, mm-hmm. um, even though it got released over here through a US distributor. But um, it, you know, I had very good reason to believe that my family would see this. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out <laughs> that other than about three minutes of me crying, there was no mention of this. So I think that people don't understand the impact of their editorial decisions. Um, This had been recorded quite a bit in advance of me going back to Europe. Um, I would have appreciated the heads up. Uh, And I know that when you're cutting together a documentary, you know, maybe they didn't even know how much they were gonna use in the final cut, but that's the problem. That's the problem with the eat and run um, version of journalism and uh, documentary making that you do feel like you're a commodity mm-hmm. and you do feel like then you're disposed of. Um, and even worse as a Weinstein survivor, because if I wouldn't do an interview because I figured, oh, I don't trust these people. I know what they're after. 
there's another 99 of us to choose from. And so it, we became the interchangeable Weinstein survivors. Yeah, and you and you, what you were just talking about with that documentary, I mean, a documentary is such a longer, more thoughtful process than a daily news story. And when I think about the reporting that I did, I mean, yes, some of the work that I did on human trafficking, I might work on a piece for two weeks and that would be considered a very long time. And that's while working on other stories. So it is so easy for journalists who are, who are doing a daily news story. And I've heard this from a lot of people in the um, gender-based violence community that they'll often get called and say, and a journalist will say in, in not so many words, you know, we need a token survivor or a token victim for a story. Do you have somebody that, that we can interview? And my deadline's three o'clock this afternoon. And the harm that can come from that, uh, I mean, it's, it's not something, I don't recall doing that as a journalist. It's not to say I didn't, but um, I certainly don't think that I was cognizant of the harm that could come from that. Actually, I, I will share one time with you uh, that's coming to my mind right now, uh, Lou, and that was, there was a news conference about uh, historical sexual assault that happened in Toronto. And uh, I, I went up to the investigator after and asked if the survivor would like to talk. And he said, oh, let me check. And he went and he made a quick phone call and he says, yeah, you can, you can call her right now. And we put her on speakerphone and all of us reporters were gathered around and she told us what happened and it was horrifying. And then it was over and I never talked to that woman again. And I don't know if she was with any, if she had anybody with her, if anybody checked up on her after, but just hearing you say that in the, in the context of a documentary where they were trying to be trauma-informed versus this, like it was, there's a journalist in, in Canada named Duncan McHugh and he always says, or he has said, be a storyteller, not a story taker. And that is so clearly story taking rather than it's just extracting and not telling. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, cause you were talking about the, the spectrum, you know, you have those that are trauma informed, they're looking out, they're, 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 they're taking care of, of the trauma that the survivors experienced. And then you have those that are, you know, the tabloid journalism, that sort of thing. But there are the ones in between. And something that you and I have discussed over email, and I should mention to anybody watching this, this is the first time that Louise and I have ever seen each other face to face, but we've had a lot of conversations back and forth over email and Twitter, is, is a live interview that you gave in Los Angeles at the start of your abuser's very high profile trial, during which the two anchors kept trying to take you back to the traumatic event, kept trying to get those salacious details out of you. Can you, and, and it's not necessarily that they wanted to hurt you, or it was just that they, it seemed, they just didn't know, you know, and you, and you really told them, um, you know, you, you really put them in their place during this clip, I should say, but can you tell me why that is so harmful? The get, like, you know, when they're trying to get that, because maybe the documentary makers weren't trying to make you cry, but that's what made made the, the final cut. But in an interview like that, where they're trying to get you to talk about those things, why is that so harmful to you? And, and how often would you say that happens? Not necessarily just with you, but with, with any survivor. 
It happens all the time. And there's a very good reason for that because uh, in my case, I came forward in October, 2017. Mm -hmm. And I, this was luck, not judgment, but I wrote a piece, uh, a blog for uh, an intranet, uh, a closed group of um, people interested in the subject of trauma. And I thought it was all over because um, Harvey had stepped down from his company and I figured knowing how news moves on, this was the end of the story. So I was really a postscript because I think I came out on October 8th, which is a couple of days later than the New York Times article. Um, and so I was able to tell my story in my own words. Mm -hmm. And I was rather oblique about the details because I didn't even think it was relevant. I was extracting trauma themes for this audience of people who are trauma professionals. Um, and there was always that to reference. So I was fortunate because I could tell people, go back and use the blog. And in fact, uh, Democracy Now!, when they interviewed me, um, they flashed a link to that story. But the problem is that most print outlets want their own version. They do not want to link back to another outlet. So they, they need it on record for themselves so they can reference themselves. So that's, that's the uh, corporate reason behind it. Um, actually, that interview that you're talking about was last year. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think, when Harvey was being arraigned in LA. So this is several years later. And as you said, there are at least three dozen interviews, some of which um, uh, include my story because I didn't know better to tell them, no, I'm not gonna tell you again. Um, and the reason why it's harmful is because first of all, overreaching, you do not wanna be known for the rest of your life by the body parts that Harvey Weinstein or anyone else groped. Uh, you do not want your son to Google you and find said body parts listed. Uh, that, that's not how you, <laughs> you were minding your own business for goodness sake mm -hmm. and some creep attacked you. Uh, and then you're destined for the rest of your life to have Louise Godbold and Harvey Weinstein's penis all in the same, you know, Mm -hmm. search result mm -hmm. not nice mm -hmm. uh, but then there's also the the aspect that our brain finds it very difficult to distinguish between what's actually happening what we are planning to do and a memory from the past and the same neurons fire mm -hmm. and as proof of that for example a kid is not walking yet put them in a group of other kids who are walking, they'll soon learn to walk because they are watching and they are practicing in their mind. And it's actually lighting up those neurons that would be involved in the act of walking. So not to the same degree as if it's actually happening, but those neural pathways are lighting up. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens with trauma. And one of the hardest things about trauma is that it is the past intruding into the present. So the quality of the memories are different. They're actually held in a different part of the brain. A trauma memory is held in the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. So it's not like a memory of, oh, a childhood holiday, we went to the beach. No, I remember we had that great group of sandwich. It's not that kind of a memory. It's often very vivid, 
flashbacks, um, the lighting, the smells, all of the senses is very, very vivid. So it feels like you're reliving. And even if you're not experiencing a flashback, even if you're not reliving, and by the way, if you're a journalist and somebody starts talking in the present tense about a historical um, attack or sexual violence, stop because they're reliving. But even if that's not the case, just rehearsing that story again, as in reiterating that story again, it can activate your sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your nervous system that responds to threat. Mm -hmm. And every time you talk about that traumatic experience, your cortisol level goes up, your stress hormone goes up. And the physical aspects of long-term or complex PTSD are all as a result of having heightened cortisol levels for a long period of time. So the more times you ask me to tell my story of abuse, the more times the cortisol is going to be running around my body, it's toxic, the more damage it's going to do to my body. And most specifically, the mechanism to turn off stress is controlled by the hippocampus, Mm -hmm. which is actually the place where you have all the receptors to suck up that cortisol. That's how we turn off the response. The part of your brain called the hippocampus sucks up the cortisol, switches off the stress response. Over a period of time, those cortisol receptors get blown out like an electrical circuit blowing up light bulbs because it's Mm -hmm. too much power. Mm -hmm. You don't have the ability to turn off the stress. So every time you're making me go over my story, you're contributing to me being less able to handle stress Mm -hmm. and being more likely to be stuck on that stress response. We call it stuck on high, which is the hypervigilant, the anxiety, the panic, the rage, all of those things. And I just, I want to drive home a point you made earlier, just to circle it back to this for anybody who's watching this, because what you said about media outlets needing to have it themselves is so bang on. (laughs) I cannot tell you, Lou, how many times I heard that over the, the course of my career that, well, we need it or we can't take it from them. Well, we need our own. We need our own. And and so just journalists, think about what Louise just said, because every time you're going to get your own, it is, you, are, you are sacrificing a bit of that survivor and, and contributing to long-term harm. So thank you so much for spelling that out um, so eloquently, Louise. It's, it's just, it's such a valuable lesson. Um, I'm looking at this list of questions that I sent you before, and I know that we've already uh, gone through a bunch of them. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, though, is that you, you mentioned in, in an email that something reporters never ask you is whether you have any questions. Can you tell me why that is so important and, and what sort of questions that you would ask a reporter? I think, it, again, it goes back to your quote about not being a story taker. Because I think the good journalists are pretty good at establishing rapport, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because you want to make the person who's being interviewed feel relaxed and comfortable. But then the moment the interview is over, 
the reporter, the journalist packs up and goes home. And you're like, wait, what just happened? Mm -hmm. This person was my best friend. Oh, especially the researchers when they're trying to get you to come on their program, mm -hmm. they promise you the earth. Um, and then the moment you're done, that's, that's why I say we feel like commodities, yeah. they're out of there. Um, and I, I have met journalists who actually I'm still in contact with. Um, Rich McHugh, who was uh, Ronan Farrow's producer, is stands mighty among them because he's been so accessible to all of us. Uh, he did a story about Weinstein survivors. But, um, and there are many others who I still have a relationship with to this day. And I really needed that. I really wanted that because uh, I felt like we had made a connection. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted them to see me as a human being not as you know come in and plunder the story and go away again um and i it because of the nature of what they were asking me about it's very intimate it's very personal and my god i'm british on top of that <laughs> um you know things things that as i said things i hadn't even told my family mm -hmm. i was discussing with them and I wouldn't have done it if they hadn't seemed to be intelligent and sensitive and empathetic people. But I don't want to feel like I just went into a doctor's examination room and took off my knickers. You know, I don't want to feel like that. Yeah. Um, I, and so part of it, the question always at the end is, is there anything else that you'd like to say that you haven't yet said and i hate that question because your mind goes complete blank but they said is is there anything that you'd like to know uh from me because i would always the question i would always ask is has there been anything that i've said that's changed how you think or feel about the issue um i would i'd be really curious mm. to know that um and I'm, I would also be curious uh, about all kinds of logistical things. And I, as we were swapping emails, I came up with a whole list of questions that I think survivors should ask going into an interview because it suddenly struck me and maybe I'm a bit dense because I've been talking to reporters and journalists about trauma-informed journalism for a while now, but it only just hit me yesterday, wait a minute, why are we giving all these tips to reporters? Why not give some tips to survivors who, as we said, probably have never done this before. They need to go in prepared. And there's so many things that I've learned that I think are important, such as if you're going to give me a release, give it to me 24 hours ahead of time. It's a standard boilerplate document. Don't give it to me once I'm there hair and makeup done, cameras rolling, or we just need your signature here. And it's a five, five pieces of paper release. Mm -hmm. Send it to me ahead of time so that I can sign it. Mm -hmm. And let, let's have a discussion ahead of time about what exactly is the theme of this piece? Because maybe later on, I'll realize I actually didn't want to be in that because that's not something that I would support. Yeah. Or... Um, to even though we, I know that um, reporters and journalists are fighting against constraints such as time constraints, such as their editor, 
such as, um, you know, there, there may be a specific angle that they want to cover, but you can be honest and upfront with the survivor ahead of time. And if you're making a documentary, for example, this happened to somebody else and you're featuring one person mm -hmm. and the other survivors are only going to be, you know, chorus line in the background, tell them up front, be honest. Uh, and I think that if survivors have these questions to go in with, it would really help them protect themselves and get a sense and not just protect themselves, but also be able to have some sense of agency, some sense of autonomy over what they're going to share and how they're going to share it. And to ensure that the final form is something that actually does them justice because so many people have been harmed by the slant that's then given to their words or their story. And I know we don't have an awful lot of time, but can I just put in a plea mm -hmm. to, please rope in the headline writers because uh, just something that happened to a friend of mine this week, the reporter was very um, empathetic and wrote a lovely piece. Uh, she was on the front cover of this magazine and they completely twisted what she had said. And I, I now know from experience, it wasn't the journalist, they have a separate person. Yep doing the headline writing. Yep. And I'm sure the journalist was absolutely mortified after making all kinds of assurances to my friend. Um, and it was so injurious, this, mm. this particular headline. Um, I won't go into the details because it would make it obvious who it is, yeah. but um, it was actually really harmful. And the same thing happened to me uh, that I gave an interview and the, I should have known better. The reporter came in with a particular agenda. I kept avoiding that agenda. Mm. Um, and then they went ahead and titled the story with the theme that they wanted to go with anyway, even though I had absolutely steadfastly resisted being drawn in uh, to comment on the one thing that it was clear he was there to get the comment on. And then they were like, we'll just put the headline there anyway. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, and you're absolutely right that um, it is, it's a separate department in most newspapers that that does the headline writing, I shouldn't say department, but quite often, I mean, I worked in newspapers for a number of years and I wouldn't know what the headline was until you saw it in the paper the next day. And sometimes, unfortunately, even if, you know, a journalist goes into a story meeting and says, this is what I have, but then they go and do the interview and it changes, maybe the headline writer hasn't read the entire story and, and you know, gotten that appreciation for the full context uh, before going ahead and writing the headline. So. That's such an excellent thing for you to point out. Let's be honest. Those people are employed because of the clicks yeah. that they generate or the number of magazines that they sell. So they are going to go for the most sensational uh, version of the story. And they seem to have a very loose affinity with the truth. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the problem because they want to drive sales. Yeah. I, I, you, you've just reminded me of one other thing I wanted to touch on you with, Louise. Um, you had referred me to a guidebook from Rutgers, and, and that's one of the links that I'll share below this video. But that guidebook mentions that survivors are more than their trauma, and it is important to portray them and their stories more broadly. Can you tell me why that is so important? That's a great piece of advice. 
And I've seen that um, in also the training that they do for police officers who have to interview um, victims of sexual violence. Uh, like I said, we do not want to be known by the body parts that our abuser groped or worse. Um, we have identities beyond this incident. In my case, uh, I, twice uh, I was in that situation where Harvey took advantage of uh, the power dynamics there and the, and the circumstances. Um, in both cases, it was a matter of minutes. I swear that my grandchildren, when they Google me, they're still gonna find that story coming up first. We are so much more than the trauma that happened to us. We're also sisters and mothers and uh, nonprofit leaders and church volunteers and um, whatever we are, uh, the local champion for marrow growing. Mm -hmm. Do you have marrows in Canada? Squash, that's what oh, it is. Oh, yes, 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 of course. <laughs> local squash growing champion. I mean, we have so many other aspects that really reflect better who we are and what our lives have been on this earth and who we matter to and why we matter. Um, so I think it is important to remember that. And also we are survivors, we're still here. So in response to whatever awful thing happened to us, there's a great deal of resilience because otherwise we wouldn't be here. Um, so it's also important to recognize that we have skills, we survived mm -hmm. uh, and we have the wisdom that comes with having survived uh, something called post-traumatic growth. You might want to look it up to yep. Dechi Calhoun, done a lot of work on that. Um, and so many people report so many benefits as they're able to uh, grow and uh, move on from the trauma. And that's not everybody, uh, about 50% on average, mm. depending on the type of trauma really. But we have gained so many skills and to only reduce us to that one event that's only interesting to you because it involved somebody famous mm -hmm. in my case um that makes me an adjunct uh a satellite to harvey weinstein's uh sexual perpetration career mm -hmm. that's what it makes me it's what it reduces me to an atom that that uh, circles his universe of uh, sexual predation. I, I wanna be known for more than that. It's, it's bad enough that that happened and that that person took advantage of you, but then to be forever linked with that person, forever in that person's orbit, because the media can't let it go that you're anyone other than a Harvey Weinstein victim is a great injustice. Well said. Thank you so much, Louise. One more question. Okay. <laughs> How should I ask you whether there's anything you wanted to discuss that I didn't steer you towards and you can mention it now? How should I word that question? Because I know you don't like the question. Um, I don't because I don't have the list of questions. That's in fine. But is and there anything sitting in your brain that you're saying, I, I really wanted to say this or anything written on a piece of paper next to you? Yes, I'm looking at my piece of paper. Um, uh, 
I think the only other thing um, that that had occurred to me as um, as we as we as I've been thinking about this um, was this whole idea of the locus of control, who has the power, and that the whole purpose of trauma-informed practice should be, rarely is, is shifting the power to the survivor. Mm -hmm. And if you've got that right, then you've got the whole trauma-informed practice. Um, and that is something that's very uncomfortable for professionals. And I wouldn't expect it to be any other way because we so often, um, our identity is so often wrapped up in who we are in, in our jobs, in our professional mm -hmm. abilities. Um, and for me, it's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, one, of the, one of the women involved in the, the documentary I was talking about contacted me because she had been asked to present on a panel to journalists about <laughs> how to do trauma-informed uh, journalism. Well, first mistake, there were no survivors on that. And she was, she at least had the humility and sense to call a survivor and ask, mm. but th that, that's another pet peeve of mine. I keep seeing these um, journalism institutions putting on uh, panels to talk about trauma-informed journalism. If you're gonna be talking about the trauma that the journalists experience, fine. Yeah. But if you're gonna talk about a trauma-informed practice and you have, no survivors on that panel. It reminds me of, you know, a, a group of men sitting around trying to design a tampon. Yeah. Really? <laughs> and I have, I must say, I have had so many survivors say to me, um, you know, call me, like not, not necessarily speaking to me, but their, their advice to journalists, journalism students, like, if you don't know, just call me, ask me if you don't know how to, what to say, or what's the, like, just call me. Like, People that, survivors that want trauma-informed journalism, I have found, or, or, or uh, get involved in the issue, are very passionate about, you know, wanting to make a difference, as, as it is, you know, for, for a number of trauma survivors, you know, want, not wanting that to happen to somebody else. They want to be a part of the conversation. Not everybody will be, but there are people out there who do want to be a part of the conversation. So that is such an excellent point, uh, Louise, and um, I'm happy again that you brought Sorry, I didn't realize you hadn't finished it. I, I've always got more that <laughs> we guaranteed. But, um, so I had said to this uh, director, say that it's about shifting control and power to the survivor. And then notice their body language, your audience, and then ask them to notice their own body language, because I think it starts there. Mm -hmm. If the idea of giving the survivor more input into your article, or as an editor, if that idea gives you the heebie-jeebies and makes you panic, that tells you a lot. That tells you, you are wanting to maintain power and control. And maybe it's your own trauma because that's of often an outworking of trauma is that we want to keep control because we got hurt when we didn't have control. So look at yourself, look at your own body, feel it in your own body when that even the idea is floated that a survivor could have any kind of um, editorial control in terms of 
reviewing the article before it goes out, um, having any kind of input on the photographs that are used. You know, if you react really resistantly in your body, that's something for you to take a notice of and to learn from that. Because why are you so frightened? Why would you be so frightened? This is supposed to be a collaboration and you will get better stories if you collaborate with survivors rather than going in and raping and pillaging and taking the stories um, and, and using us as commodities. Thank you, Louise.